0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. Jackie Byron has written about one woman, two dogs and a lot of gin in her book Happy Hour. This woman is getting older but not wiser and will give the reader something to think about as well as a lot of laughs. Welcome, Jackie.
2: Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me.
1: There are things this woman, Franny Calderwood, is very good at. But life, or more so death, has made her want to live a very secluded life. Who's died?
2: So her husband, um, Frank, of 30-something years, has died. And he's died, when we meet her, he's died three years ago in a pretty brutal accident.
1: Three years, and her grief hasn't lessened at all. In fact, she's put more rules in place for living What is she doing about her friends?
2: She is self-isolating. She has decided to remove herself from the world and all her family and friends, and she's living quite a life of sort of decadent seclusion with her dogs, whiskey and soda and and her drink cabinet, and she's got a lot of other interests. But basically she pretty much does everything she can do to avoid or just not see her friends anymore.
1: Yeah, there's Anthea, her school friend, who has just had to give up inviting her because Franny just doesn't want to come. And her daughter, Eloise, who's Franny's goddaughter, even she offers IT help and that's the only reason she calls in. And Margaret, her sister-in-law, Franny tries to evade her birthday phone call and visit. But when Frank was alive, they had a very social time, entertaining, cooking and drinking. She's certainly not entertaining now, what about the other activities?
2: She's a woman of rituals, Jan, so she's
1: she's keeping up a lot of those. Well, you did mention about her a drink cabinet, and in the back of the book, there's even a recipe for Franny's favorite gin cocktail. And of course, the book is called Happy Hour. So who does she drink with and talk to?
2: Predominantly the dogs. <laughs> Whiskey and Soda, but also Frank. So she has photos of Frank all around the house. Her philosophy is that she was talking to him for 30 years. Why should she stop now? And as she jokes at one point in the book, he never always answered anyway. And so she keeps up quite a dialogue with him. It's, it's not a morose thing in that sense. It's quite a natural thing, I think, mm-hmm. for her.
1: And you mentioned her two dogs, Whiskey and Soda, but she doesn't take them to the closest dog park. Why not?
2: Everything that she does is to avoid memories of the life she had before. And her and Frank were sort of stars of the local dog park. Well, they they were just such a social couple that I mean, if you've got a dog, you know, around Melbourne where we are, it's often a great way to meet neighbours and stuff. And that she was very much enmeshed in that community and she doesn't want to see him anymore. So she does, even the dogs must suffer, even they must live in seclusion.
1: She just doesn't want to see anybody's sympathy in their eyes. There's Wayne in the bottle shop that she frequented often, and he never asks how she's coping. A quote from your book He saw her as an entity unto herself, not the remaining half of a once fine pair. And then the new neighbours who move in next door. Who are the Salernos?
2: So we've got this stage a single mother, sally Ann and her teenage daughter, Dee, who's about 15 or 16, and a little boy, Josh, who's eight. And they've sort of landed there from a, an unhappy marital situation. And Although Franny begins by being pretty, I mean, she, see, she sees the basketball hoop being moved in and that's, that already sends her up in lights. But she sort of has already made up her mind at the beginning, won't be getting to know them. She even says to the dogs, don't get excited, you're not going to have new friends. But little by little they all start kind of meshing and and their problems start coming over her fence. She gets to know them and things happen.
1: Dee's the angry, potty-mouthed teenager <laughs> that... Uh helps Franny in an awkward situation so Dee asks for help in return and that's transport to get to a party that she wants to go to but Dee also gives her some fashion advice and further help when Dee comes home drunk. How does Franny help Josh?
2: Well, Franny is an artist, and she has actually been quite successful as a children's book illustrator and writer in her in her earlier years and Josh is quite an artistic little boy, but bullied, quite solitary, and she helps him in a few ways. She certainly uh, opens up his eyes to art and encourages his encourages him and lets him use studio. She also allows him to have fun with her dog, Whiskey in particular, because he's lost his dog. And eventually she even um, helps him, well, become the winner of a big competition.
1: Franny hears that the father is less polite about Josh's arty interests and his bullying has caused the separation. How does Franny help sally Ann?
2: I think she helps her in both practical and more emotional ways. Franny's got time and connections behind her, so she actually helps her with a solicitor. But I think she also sort of Gs her up and gets her to start thinking about standing up for herself and that sort of thing. And along the way she also ends up playing a bit of a pivotal role in a fairly dangerous situation with the ex-husband.
1: Well, things look pretty good but there's Franny's flamboyant drinking habits. Maybe we can hear from page 45. Hey, where's the pop, complained Dee.
2: The only people who pop are racing car drivers, TV reality stars and the royals when they launch a new boat, said Franny. In real life, you're just wasting precious bubbles and spilling delicious champagne. No, dear, anyone who knows what they're on about opens champagne like this. Mark my words. Yes.
1: Yes. But these also lead to trouble. What was the problem with dressing up for Oscar night with D? Are
2: we talking about the drinking? <laughs> oh
1: we are. We are.
2: So so basically D is is 1516 and She and Franny really actually meet at the bottle shop because like many a teen, Dee is trying to get her hands on some booze and she hassles Franny to buy her some, which Franny refuses, mostly though because it's a vodka mixer that she wants to buy more than it's the the actual moral thing about. So she thinks she'll take it upon herself to introduce her to a little bit of more... Classy and refined drinking. And she does try and keep it till she lets her have a, a, a shot of Stolly mm-hmm. and she likes us have a glass of bubbles. But, you know, one might argue that it was not really her role to
1: allow <laughs> any of
2: those. She's not her grandmother. She's mm-hmm. not, you know, but anyway.
1: Yeah, problems there. Well, look, how did Franny's friends feel about this growing attachment to the neighbors? Her goddaughter in
2: particular. Um, finds it really hard because I think as you go along what Franny realises and what hopefully the reader realises is how much Franny's decision to step away from her world has Mm. hurt the people that love her. They also lost Frank and now they've lost Franny as well. I think the goddaughter in particular cannot believe that she and her mother can't get in to see this woman yet these Strangers next door can. I think her goddaughter is is actually really wounded by it.
1: Well, there's another more serious drinking bout where a hospital visit is needed, and a nurse has to regularly visit. Is Franny thankful and contrite?
2: Well, you know, Jan, in the editing <laughs> process, I actually had to dial that back because she was actually even more of a bitch to the nurse in my original version. Oh. I don't know. To talk about the mechanics, but the editor said to me, I. I mean, you know, there's always that talk about likeable characters and whatever, but it was like she's too much of a bitch to this poor woman. But, no, she, she doesn't love it. She doesn't. And mainly who does? She doesn't love someone in her business, like, because she has to, because of what happens to it, she has to help, be helped having being bathed and dressed mm-hmm. and it's everything, let alone that there's people around at cocktail hour that won't let her have a cocktail. There's a, I mean, Franny's only 65. The nurse is in her probably, you know, 50s. And there's that thing about being spoken to like you're an old lady and that gets Franny's hackles up, something shocking. So, yeah, there's no bloodshed. That's the main thing.
1: So we're going to leave Franny there, but I'm going to move to another aspect of the book, which was really, really interesting. Most court cases allow for victim statements. But what about when the guilty party wants forgiveness? Franny calls him the evil prick. And the book starts with a really ugly scene. So what's happening at the very beginning of your book, Jackie Byron?
2: Well, it is page one, so it's not too much of a spoiler. But she is is wrapping up dog poo to pop in the mail to send... Back to the guy who killed Frank. He has reached out through various caseworkers and so forth for her. He's only young; he's only 23 or something for her forgiveness. This is something that Fran is going to struggle with, mm-hmm. and so she, um, yeah, feeds uh, whiskey, some organic strawberry yogurt, I believe, and lets the results <laughs> speak for themselves.
1: And. And we don't really know right till the end of the book whether what's going to happen there, but we get reminders of it all the way through, which was really clever placement. So it's from the serious hurt to the humour. You really did create a quick-witted, well-rounded woman. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to quote some of the things that Jackie Byron has written. Take me home, country road, kept playing in her head. Franny suffered from earworms the way other women suffered from urinary tract infections. (laughs) I I laughed and laughed at that one. (laughs) And another quote, the older I get, the more I see life as an accumulation of losses, everything from our pelvic floor control to our eyesight. Very clever, very insightful. You know, by page 21, I chuckled three times. And then, Jackie Byron, you put into the intergenerational amusement. And we have Franny saying, praise the Lord and pass the mustard. But it was her suck it and see to D, the teenager, who thought she was talking about a blowjob. Most women that age are also into book clubs. Now, Franny's finished with her friend book club, she's on a virtual one. And what enjoyment does she get most out of it?
2: She joins this Facebook online book club, and I think it's where she gets a, most of her enjoyment at, at when we first meet her, because it gives her a chance to sort of be quite anonymous in her very facetious stalking of other members and, and comments to people who she thinks aren't quite smart enough. She particularly... Has it in for a very sort of alternative sort of woman who's into yoni eggs and you know making her own glad wrap out of like, B-wax paper or whatever. And yeah, she likes to uh, she she can get in there and make a lot of comments about people's stuff,
1: which especially you know, about Nancy, the moral campaigning, advice giving, mantra mumbling, social media zealot that she abhorred. <laughs> yeah. Look, not only have you captured the essence of this character but also the suburb in Melbourne where she lives how about reading about Cheltenham on page 10.
2: Frank and Franny had moved to the bayside suburb of Cheltenham close to 25 years ago. Too far from the city for office types and too far from the beach for ladies who lunched. It was home to a mixed bag of working and sometimes not working Anglo-Australians, many with a caravan or boat in their driveways, some with cars up on bricks. Alongside them lived Greek and Italian families who filled their large gardens with fruit trees and white stone lines and sometimes, to Frank's delight, used their garages for salami and winemaking days. Back then the houses were unremarkable old weatherboards beside yellow brick stalwarts, all on spacious blocks with room for kids and dogs to play. Men had sheds and still mowed their own lawns. Women had hill hoists and still cleaned their own homes.
1: Yeah, it really is a suburb that we can relate to, especially somebody my age. It's a debut novel, Jackie Byron, and often novelists write about how many drafts and rewrites they've had to do. But for you, you just sort of say, writing has brought so much joy
2: yeah definitely i finished this during lockdown last year so what a great project to have i mean i do feel so lucky that writing regardless of anything else is my is my hobby because you can do it anywhere all you need well, you know, i was gonna say laptop you really could just use pen and paper but it's it was so nice as things were so glum, <laughs> and we thought they were going to end then, but anyway, to just toddle off into this world, you know, where there was no COVID and you could choose to self-isolate, but it wasn't forced upon you.
1: Well, I read it in lockdown and thoroughly enjoyed it. Of course. Jackie Byron has created a feisty 65-year-old woman, getting older, perhaps not getting wiser. Friends had become unwelcome in her seclusion until circumstances being the new neighbours, breach her fortress and heart in the humorous happy hour. Jackie, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Dan, and thanks for supporting local writer that's really it's more important than ever at the moment. Thank you.
1: And now it's David's turn.
0: J.P. Pema once again takes us on a thrilling journey of psychological suspense and intrigue in his latest work,
3: the last guests so jp welcome back to 3cr thanks so much for having me again david i'm I'm excited to chat about this one lena
0: phillips who narrates this story is compromised and firstly it's her own behavior that has brought her undone
3: yeah she's misbehaving i guess but um i i like to think this sound, in in her world anyway, there's a sort of sound logical reason behind what she's doing, but she's out seeing someone she shouldn't at a bar, and I guess that's the beginning of the story.
0: But it's the technology that has allowed her to arrange this liaison supposedly with anonymity.
3: Yeah, that's right. You know, um, when I wrote this, I I was thinking of a story I could tell that you couldn't tell 10 years ago a really contemporary kind of technologically accessible, I suppose. And that, you know, we're looking at not only devices, but services and software that wasn't available 10 years ago. And although dating apps were available 10 years ago, there certainly weren't as many of them. And I think the level of anonymity that's available now, uh, given, you know, I think Tinder in its infancy was, wasn't was you know, necessarily um, for over 40s and stuff like that. So it's it's really everyone uses this technology now. And Lena uh, in the story is using it to, yeah, as I said, organise this liaison. But, of course, everything on the internet will leave a trace to some extent. And if you can follow that back to the source, then, of course, you can work out who's who and who's done what.
0: But it's more pervasive than that because the man she meets, Daniel begins to use that technology against her. And it's as simple as talking to Siri on Lena's phone.
3: Yeah, correct. And this is something I find funny. I've done this before to friends um, as a kind of practical joke. You know, you say, hey, Siri to a locked phone and you can say message so-and-so right and if they've got siri turned on it's easy enough to do so you say hey siri message or call this person and siri will do it even if the phone is locked or something like that can can cause all sorts of issues if you're on a date you could say say hey siri text mum because everyone's mum is under mum in their phone and then you could tell siri to send a message that could cause issues later on so it's, it's pretty interesting i Myself, don't have it turned off either, although I understand the dangers of having Siri enabled. It also means that our devices are, as everyone knows, listening literally all the time.
0: It also means you've got a perverse
3: sense of humour, Josh. (laughs) I do. I don't think I've ever done anything too bad. I, I used to do it in our office between colleagues that were sitting next to each other. So it'd be quite funny. And I'd be watching it and it was pretty obvious what was going on, but it was always a bit of a laugh
0: we can now escalate this notion of digital monitoring to a whole other level because you've got a group called people and they are a rather insidious operation. What do they get up to?
3: Yeah. So the concept of people is not entirely original in that there are people online who share privately uh, and anonymously share often illegal material. I mean, this isn't news to anybody, but the idea for people for me came from we, we were Airbnb being our property. Um, we had an apartment in South Yarra on a Kiwi, so we'd so often go back to New Zealand, but we also would go out to country, out to Clunes up near Ballarat. And um, whenever I traveled for work or I've traveled for work, we'd put our place up on Airbnb. And the first time it happened, um, you know, we came home, and I tell this story a lot, but we came home, and because we wanted five star reviews, we'd always leave a bottle of wine out. Or something nice for the guests, you know, And one time we came home and we'd stalk the guests, you know, because you the first time you're so nervous about letting like a axe murder into your house, I suppose, that you um you check up on them. And so we did do that, and they seemed like pretty reasonable people. So we came home and there was about a glass missing from this reasonably expensive bottle of wine, and we um, I, I remember asking Paige, you know, could do you think we could drink this? Obviously the answer was no because it was open. Uh, but the guests had had about a glass out of it and they seem pretty sophisticated. We don't think they would have drunk from the bottle. There's probably no harm in it. But then I started to think, what's the worst that could happen? And I, I always think like this, David. So I was thinking, you know, what if they put something in the wine? And then I thought, no, that's not even the worst thing they could do. What if they put cameras through our house? And it's sort of, a, you know, as a hypothetical, I thought about that and what would be the motivation for that? And so people sort of was born out of that. Um, the voyeurs exist online. They they tend to install cameras in their properties, right? So they tend to install cameras in their rental properties. There's been countless incidents of this around the world now. And I thought there's a more efficient way to do this, um, you know, to, to access these private moments. And, and holiday rentals, why wouldn't they share their footage with other voyeurs? Um And so that's what people was born out of. It's a network of voyeurs who are um, accessing uh, a number of streams that have uh, tiny surveillance cameras installed in holiday rentals.
0: What then happens is that, well, ostensibly, this could be a psychological thriller about infidelity and voyeurism, But you give it a current day relevance because there's a parallel here with Kane's husband, who is a veteran who served in Afghanistan. And digital footage from Afghanistan has seriously compromised servicemen there.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, um, it's an interesting kind of area to write because there's no obligation for servicemen to wear. Um, surveillance equipment. And I've always been fascinated by that, by that decision. So I thought, why would they wear them? And, you know, these these guys wear these GoPros and and they own the footage. That to me doesn't sit right, really, because why would they want that? There's a big case in Australia and there have been cases in New Zealand of war crimes and, and alleged video evidence that the military doesn't own because it's owned privately by whoever filmed it. And so I, I I guess for me, the inverse of the sort of cameras and, and airbags and that sort of attack on privacy, the inverse of that is, you know, these people who are going to another country and committing crimes and, and murder, as far as I'm concerned, and, and they own that footage. They're the only ones that can view it. But it does
0: speak then, not just to the fact that we like observing others, but We are our own worst enemy psychologically because we want a
3: record of our own behavior as well. Yeah, the kind of mental loops we tie ourselves in to justify our use of social media is fascinating, um, really, because at the end of the day, it's so much of it's just narcissism. The profile you look at most on social media is your own. It's really interesting, and honestly, it's intellectually fatiguing trying to get your head around just how much of our privacy we give up readily. And yet we still, whenever there's a, a breach of our privacy or a perceived breach of our privacy, um, we just feel like, you know, this fundamental right has been, has been attacked and it has, but of course we've just, we just give that up. Like anyone can build a pretty um, comprehensive profile of, of who you are just from those things. They know where you work, they know, they'll likely know your age, your height, your weight, Based on your fitness apps. Uh, if you use a running app, they know where you live because almost everyone starts their run from their home and ends their run at their home. The next Go thing ahead. that occurs is a murder
0: in Kane and Lena's house. They've rented out their property. Um, Kane vets the potential customers and the like, but Kane and Lena end up being held hostage in their own home. And a murder occurs, but how can they then tell the detectives everything they know, given that they're already compromised?
3: Yeah, that's right. So they've got secrets, uh, David. And, and I think it's the fun of writing crime novels is the reader knows their secrets, but they don't know each other's secrets. And so it can be a, a pretty tricky thing if you're dealing with police And you can go to jail for not giving police all the information, right? So it was quite fun and and interesting writing that dynamic where um, they don't know each other's secrets and the police are kind of asking them about this and the police are investigating and potentially getting closer to the truth. And they are just sort of in their own worlds trying to protect their their personal lives from um, what would be catastrophic really if it all came out. So... Um, and then of course they realize, you know, midway through this event that people are watching. So, you know, there's a, there's this record of what happened in their home that night. There's a record of who does what, uh, and there's all these people online who've seen who, who's done what as well. Um, but of course they're voyeurs and by acknowledging what they saw, they're also acknowledging that they've engaged a highly illegal service and a, and would likely be in trouble themselves.
0: Finally, we have this notion of a third person. And this really sort of is where the novel ends with suspicions and doubts really about who's monitoring whom because just as there are voyeurs out there the police can also use this information to what extent do they go all of this other world seems to be potentially viable uh, or suggested at the end of your novel
3: yeah i tend to write reasonably open-ended endings i mean i'd say i I definitely do there's no no ambiguity there I, i write endings that and lend themselves to a bit more speculation after that kind of final line, I suppose. There is uh, this world out there, the world of the story, but you know, there's, there's certainly parallels in, in real life as well. And I decided pretty early on that the story wasn't about people, that the story was about Kane and Lena. And so, yeah, we get to the end, as you said, and there is a potential of this third man. There's all sorts of mystery about what really happened in the house and who has the the footage as well. Um, And we're talking about a few hundred people who are watching online. We're all subscribing to the service. So, yeah, the third man, and as you're reading, um, hopefully it becomes pretty clear what's happened. But the third man is is the big question, I guess, that drives the second half of the narrative.
0: Well, if the listener or the reader wants to find out who the third man is, if we can actually ever tell, if they want to know why Lena and Kane do what they do, They will have to go away and read The Last Guests. It's by J.P. Pamar, and it's a hashtag release. So, Josh, thank you once again for talking with me today.
3: Thanks so much for having me on, David. Always a pleasure.
0: So,
1: more authors again next week. Thanks for listening.
0: You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.